Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, July 12th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Peter Strzok, pronounced Strzok, much to the confusion of several elected officials on the House Judiciary Committee, was testifying today, trying to explain how he, as an FBI agent, dealt with bias. He made a consistent argument. He said that as a human, he has bias, but as an FBI employee, he sets the bias aside. Again, bias, yes. Bias affecting the job, never. They would not tolerate any improper behavior in me any more than I would tolerate it in them. That is who we are as the FBI. And the suggestion that I, in some dark chamber somewhere in the FBI, would somehow cast aside All of these procedures, all of these safeguards, and somehow be able to do this is astounding to me. It simply couldn't happen. And the proposition that that is going on, that it might occur anywhere in the FBI, deeply corrodes what the FBI is in American society, the effectiveness of their mission, and it is deeply destructive. So what we had were some charges against Strzok over the disquiet he felt concerning a Donald Trump presidency. And yes, he expressed that disquiet in private texts with his co-worker lover. Sure. And the Republicans on the committee acted shocked, wounded, and aggrieved that anyone could hold such Trump antagonistic positions. Strzok argued back that such cynicism corrodes. Deeply corrodes. Sorry, deeply corrodes our trust in institutions. This was not at all off-putting to members of the committee, like Daryl Issa, who pretty brazenly told Strzok just what was going on here. Sir, I'm not aware of any investigation of which I'm a target. Well, you're a target of, of our investigation. Yeah, he is, as committee chair Trey Gowdy made plain early on. Bias is the prejudging of a person, a group, or a thing. It usually has a negative connotation, but it is a preconceived position or a prejudgment. Which is accurate. It is the making up of your mind ahead of time. Which is inaccurate. Bias, as per Strzok's description, is not making up your mind. It's the ideas that are already in your mind that you can't help. Bias injects itself early in decision-making, but it need not be the definitive determinant of the decision. This is especially true if one recognizes his or her bias. People misunderstand what bias means. I don't mean bias in the sense of discernment. I'm not playing that game. Oh, I'm biased towards rosés. No, I'm talking about bias, what we talk about, preconceptions. But notice the prefix pre. They need not be our final conception, though they often are. And even people who think they're wrestling with their bias often don't wrestle sufficiently or, and this is a really complicated thing to understand, but sometimes they do a good job of wrestling with their bias and still come to the conclusion that aligns with their bias but not because of their bias. Now, it's hard to know when this happens. It's hard to say if you're sufficiently wrestling with your bias. And Trey Gowdy was totally uninterested in plumbing any of those distinctions because he had a dictionary and he was going to cite it. I'm going to go ahead and give you the definition of destabilizing. The first one kind of is obvious. It's to make unstable. Aha. The second one caught my attention. The second dictionary definition. Destabilizing. What Trump is attempting to do to America if he were more competent. Okay, again, that's not it. 
Let's let Trey Gowdy have his definition. To call something such as a government to be incapable of functioning or surviving. In other words, Steve Bannon's wet dream, the Freedom Caucus platform, and if we don't stand athwart the Trey Gowdies of the world, the effect the Trump presidency will in fact have. All these hearings consisted of was caterwauling about Strzok's bias, which he admitted he had, and which he said he set aside. I will stipulate we are all poor judges of our own ability to set aside the preconceived notions we have. So what an accuser needs to do in order to prove that a person is motivated by bias is not just prove bias, which was really easy in this case because Strzok admitted his bias, but the accuser has to demonstrate that the bias had an effect on the choices and decisions the accused made and the actions the accused took. No Republican on this committee, or really anywhere else that I can think of, offered a shred of evidence that bias, which Strzok says he has, actually affected the job that Strzok did. Well, I should say, when the text surfaced and his bias was known, he got removed from that job, so that was a direct effect. But over the sometimes loud objections of Democrats on the committee, Republicans continued to pound him, culminating in this lambasting issued by Texas Republican Louis Gohmert. And I can't help but wonder when I see you looking there with a little smirk, how many times did you look so innocent into your wife's eye and lie to her about oh, Lisa? Mr. Chairman, this is outrageous. You know, shame on you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, please. Have you, Mr. Chairman, this is intolerable harassment of the witness. What's wrong with that? You need your medication. Yeah, I think we could all use some Adderall to concentrate, an emetic to make us purge, and then a stiff drink to make us all forget this sad failure to connect accusation with actual evidence. On the show today, the president likes to go for broke on this one state brag, and I badger him about it. But first, the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have some decisions to make regarding how they will approach Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. I speak to one member, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, about that and more. That's up next. Sheldon Whitehouse is a U.S. senator from Rhode Island. He has been the U.S. attorney for his state. He has been the attorney general for Rhode Island. He sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee charged with questioning the Supreme Court nominees. Now, I was watching from about eight months ago his questioning of then judicial candidates, and he noted that there is, well, his words were in kabuki, but that is mine. There is this dance that is engaged in that is the way to get nominated. He said we get answers that are hopeless. We sit here in this bizarro world in which we're asked to pretend that a nominee's personal views and social views have no role. We know as practicing lawyers that is not true. Sheldon Whitehouse joins me. Hello. Thank you for coming on. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So let's talk about, and the word you used was preposterous, the preposterous ritual of questioning nominees who know what they have to do to pretty much avoid answering the question. What can be done about it? If this is going to work, it has to be taken out of the partisan predicament of, you know, only uh, the minority being willing to 
call people out on this. I think the judges have been schooled in the murder boards that prepare them for this hearing to kill time saying completely non-controversial nonsense. The other piece of the problem is that there's never any follow-up. Once you're through the hearing, it's all all income free. Yeah. And we have never sanctioned anybody when it turned out that after confirmation, what they said to us in the uh, hearing was complete BS. And it has become, to quote you quoting me, a preposterous exercise that simply doesn't do the job it was intended to do. Well, tell me about that idea of sanctioning. I've not really considered that. Is there a constitutional remedy? Would you have to sanction a lower court judge or could you actually apply that to someone on the Supreme Court who essentially was dishonest or lied to you? If we're going to solve this problem, and I'm not sure that at this point the Judiciary Committee wants to, but if we wanted to solve this problem, it should be something where you get a letter from the chairman signed by the entire Judiciary Committee saying, you know, when you came before us, we expected you to tell us the truth. We put you under oath for that reason. We cannot reconcile what you told us with what you have done, and we want an explanation And if the explanation isn't forthcoming, then pursue hearings. And if somebody was really out of control, I suppose you could always argue that uh, they were impeachable based on the falsity of their testimony in the committee and that the whole thing had been a sham because of that falsity and you needed to go back and and recall it. That would certainly... That would certainly get the attention of future nominees coming through. Right. Of course, though, the problem is that they don't engage in things that can be proved false. It's that they don't engage at all. (laughs) Well, you know, some of it you can challenge pretty well. We had this character, Jim Ho, come through and he gave all the usual blather about how he would follow precedent and how... You know, he would be a very modest judge and, you know, he wouldn't be appropriate for him to state any opinions. He doesn't, you know, he wouldn't want to bring opinions to the bench. And then bang, basically the first case out, he uh, wrote a lengthy dissent talking about the merits of big money in politics. Mm -hmm. And you just can't reconcile those two. And this was straight out of the box. It was basically signaling to... Uh, everybody, hey, I'm here now and I'm ready to play. Uh, support the orthodoxy from the right. It just shows what a sham the hearings have become. And he's not the only one. There are others. Yeah, this is uh, Judge Ho is on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and he ruled that a $350 limit for election spending was too low, a uh, opinion that the Washington Examiner describes as Trump-appointed judge delivers fantastic campaign finance opinion in first ruling. Now, let's talk about uh, Brett Kavanaugh specifically. What should his position be in terms of if it ever comes to him sitting in judgment of President Trump? What do you want? I'm sure he'll be asked about that. What do you want him to say about that? In this case, it's the appointment that's the threat to the independence. And the easiest thing would be to say, look, for anything that is you know, pending at the time of my appointment, um, I'm going to recuse myself just because mm-hmm. no person should be appointing the judge who's going to be the determinative vote in such a way that it hobbled the investigation and let Trump off the hook. 
Okay, pending at the time of appointment, because we know that Nixon appointed Blackman and Powell, and they ruled in United States versus Nixon. But the distinction there that I'm hearing is the Mueller investigation that is ongoing. You think that it would be proper for him to recuse himself if something comes of that? That would be the most obvious and clean answer. It does not put a lasting burden on his tenure on the Supreme Court. It deals with the matters that are currently pending. And it's particularly important because you see such a vigorous effort uh, by the president to interfere with and to impugn the Mueller investigation. If he were taking this in a traditional way of just letting the investigation run its course and not trying to interfere, that would be one thing. But when you see the relentless attacks and efforts to manipulate, then the idea that he might be trying to manipulate through this appointment becomes much more uh, likely. And at the same time, that's amplified by the fact that the House is doing its own version of harassment and impugning and actually trying to get access to investigative records. And we do not know. It's a wide open question to what extent the House investigators are actually operating in cooperation with or at the direction of the Trump legal team. They won't answer questions about that. So Trump has created an atmosphere in which this is a much more ripe and real concern than it might be in other circumstances. I have seen your speechlets about how preposterous the hearings are. I, I've taken your point. Those were done in smaller hearings that won't get national attention. So you have a choice. You could do a version of that and sort of get meta in your seven minutes and talk about how preposterous the hearings are, or you could go forward and just try to get answers and get stonewalled, or you could do a third thing, which maybe I haven't thought of, but I don't know, put the whole system on trial. What do you think your tack is going to be? I think, um, you know, it remains to be seen. We've got a lot of time before the uh, hearing actually takes place, so I don't want to lock myself into anything. But what I have been dwelling on so far has been this process that Kavanaugh is coming through, which has an opening element in which behind closed doors, the Federalist Society manages a big special interest pre-approval process so that any potentially unwelcome judge who might rule the wrong way on choice or guns or pollution or whatever can be cleared out. And I think judges facing that obstacle course know that, okay, these are the terms of advancement. And the fact that that whole thing is so important and yet so non-transparent is a real hazard. And the public deserves a right to know what assurances were made through all of that. Then the name comes forward and you get these advocacy groups spending actual dark money. Mm -hmm. In the case of the uh, Garland de Gorsuch transition, one donor gave nearly $18 million. And we don't know who that donor is because they've remained anonymous. I think it might be relevant to know who gave $18 million to make sure that Gorsuch instead of Garland got on the court. Right. So that when cases relevant to that person came up, you could be on alert for whether Gorsuch was engaged in a nice payback for all of that. Right. And then once they're on the court, you get this 
grim setup of fake amicus briefs that come in from groups that are funded by basically the same handful of billionaires and right-wing foundations. And then finally, the, the, the sordid end of the story is this whole array, now more than two dozen, five to four decisions in which all the Republicans line up, change the law in favor of big special interests, violate traditional conservative judicial doctrines on the way, but deliver the prize to those same special interests who were in at the very beginning signing off on their nominations. And that loop of influence is something that I think is at this point a cancer on the court. And and the dark money will be used to what? Advertise in West Virginia and Indiana and Missouri against vulnerable Democratic senators who might vote. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or prop up ones who might go the other way mm -hmm. on the Republican side, but to basically try to tip the balance uh, in the Senate on confirmation. And as bad as dark money is in regular elections, the idea that it becomes influential and perhaps determinative in a Supreme Court appointment ought to curdle everybody's blood in this country. And to make it just a little bit weirder, the reason we have these big dark money things is because of a five to four decision of the Supreme Court, the Citizens United decision. So the last thing I want to ask you is it ties together many of your efforts. So you give what every week you give a speech about climate change on the floor of the Senate. Yep. Every week we're in session. Every week you're talking about climate change. And I've seen not just the hearing that I talked about, you you, you do hearings on dark money where, from what I can see, only uh, Democrats show up, but you have academics and people who um, have been victims, I guess you could say, of, of dark money and people with unions. Yep. And now here you're talking to me about the process of, of the Federalist Society and these amicus briefs. It seems with all of these things, one through line is if the public only knew, if people only knew. And my question to you is, in the time you've been in the Senate, has your faith in the ability, the normal ability that we have to communicate important information to the citizenry, has that been shaken at all? Yes, I think that it's trying to do the public's business has been put on a much steeper uphill path since the Citizens United decision. Since you mentioned climate change, let me just report that when I first got here to the Senate in January of 2007, there were three pretty good years, 07, 08, and 09, in which there was a lot of bipartisan activity on climate change. There were multiple bipartisan climate change bills. There were bipartisan climate change hearings, and the Republican nominee for president, John McCain, ran on a good climate change platform. Then came the Citizens United decision in January of 2010, and it was like the Republican Party had a heart attack that moment. And since that decision, which powered up all of this big money for the fossil fuel industry, there have been no bipartisan hearings, no bipartisan bills, and the presidential nominees have all been climate deniers, even as the evidence has piled up. So there was a very clear before and after in which armed with Citizens United unlimited money, the fossil fuel industry was virtually instantly able to shut down all Republican dissent about climate change and turn this into what now appears to be a partisan issue, even though in reality this is just old-fashioned special interest, special pleading 
uh, that legislators have seen forever. Yeah, and and the through line is not the composition of the Senate, and it wasn't the party who was in the White House, if we're thinking of what changed. And it wasn't the average global temperature. You're pointing to the big thing that correlates to this change is the effect of dark money in politics. Yes, particularly, well, specific to Citizens United, it was unlimited money. Yeah. And it took about a nanosecond for the unlimited money folks to figure out how to hide their hand so it became dark money. And then the worst part isn't just the unlimited money or the dark money. It's the threat that now that a big special interest like the fossil fuel industry is powered up with the ability to spend unlimited dark money, they don't actually have to do it. Yeah, They can just show up at somebody's office or at their campaign and say, listen, dude, it's game over for you. If you don't do what we want on climate legislation, you're dead to us and we'll make sure you have a primary opponent and they'll be well-funded and we'll cut you off with the leadership and we will do everything in our power to ruin your life. And that conversation is always going to be a really bad thing to happen in a democracy. It is about as non-transparent, sneaky, thuggish, and secretive as you can get. And yet, that's what Citizens United created. Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island. Thank you very much, Senator. Good to be with you. Thank you. And now the spiel. President Trump gave a press conference in Brussels today, and it got me to thinking about Wisconsin. Of course, Wisconsin. Why Wisconsin? Well, let's jump into that time machine. We'll go back to a more innocent era. Let's call it late June. Then Trump was speaking at the site of the new Foxconn plant in Wisconsin and bragged thusly. When we won the state of Wisconsin, it hadn't been won by a Republican since Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952. Did you know that? I did not know that. And the reason I did not know that was that a Republican, in fact, had won Wisconsin in 1952 and 1956 and 1960 and 1968 and 1972 and 1980 and 1984. So what was he talking about? He did give us this clue. Ronald Reagan, remember? Wisconsin was the state that Ronald Reagan did not win. And that was in 1952. Aha! He confused Wisconsin from Minnesota. Except all those things he said about Wisconsin, if you just change the name to Minnesota, they aren't true either. For instance, Eisenhower won Minnesota in 52 and 56, and Nixon won it in 76. And and this is the exact point Trump was making. Trump lost Minnesota in 2016. And of course, why would Trump bring up some other president if not to brag about himself? But look, look, all that took place a couple weeks ago, and we all make mistakes. I'm sure an aide quietly corrected Donald Trump afterward, and Trump took it to heart and chastened. He vowed not to make the same error. No, here he was in Montana a week ago. Reagan had his big win. He won every state except one, the great state of Wisconsin. I won Wisconsin. First time... First time since Dwight Eisenhower in 1953. No, wrong. And you made a fool of all those people behind you blindly applauding. Well, in fact, they were blindly applauding. You probably did the job. So at least at this point, we know that Trump must have read many fact check columns pointing this out. And all the news reports said, well, he got that one wrong. And then 
a trusted aide, maybe the trusted aide who wasn't on the Foxconn trip, came up to him and said something. A note would be passed. A correction would be offered. Nuh-uh. Because today, in Brussels, during a, an international affairs press conference, Trump made this brag. You know, it's interesting. One of the states we won, Wisconsin, I didn't even realize this until fairly recently. That was the one state that Ronald Reagan didn't win when he ran the board. His second time, he didn't win Wisconsin, and we won Wisconsin. So, you know, we, we, had a, we had a great night. All right, here are the possibilities, right? One, no one on his staff knew that this was a mistake. No, that can't be the case. Two, no one on his staff told Trump that he made a mistake. That is possible. Or he was told but did not care. That is also possible. Or he was told but didn't retain the information. I don't think that's what happened. Or he was told and just chose to lie because it's easier to lie than to not lie. And Trump thinks lying doesn't have consequences. Also, Trump's a bullshit artist. If he pulled in the bullshit, he'd only be a bullshit amateur. And when Trump does things, he does them big. All of these possibilities are disturbing. And also, let's be honest, they're probably for you in the category of, yeah, disturbing, but come on, totally unremarkable for Trump. So here's why I think it might be a little bit remarkable. We've been told that Trump has a strategy or Trump does this by design, or at least we're told that Trump's lies have a purpose, like maybe gaslighting us or maybe reassuring his base's worldview. So when he lies about American carnage and immigrants murdering us left and right, it at least helps his credentials, his appeal with the base, saying something they want to hear. But this is a totally irrelevant fact to the base, to Trump. It doesn't ever need to be mentioned. And in fact, I could see someone one day cutting an ad in Wisconsin that says essentially, Donald Trump, you want to vote for him? Because he thinks we're Minnesota. And doing the same ad in Minnesota that says, you want to vote for this guy? Sure. He doesn't know the difference between our state and Wisconsin. And maybe you can air that ad in Wisconsin and play the University of Wisconsin fight song and then sing the words. Minnesota, hell, Minnesota, plunge right through that line. And then show Goldie the Gopher actually consuming and eating Bucky Badger. I'm telling you, that would be very disturbing to a Wisconsinite. Or play the ad in Minnesota and you bust out Soundgarden, but the doctored version. Wisconsin. It's touchy stuff, especially in these states. And if Trump persists in confusing the two, he might imperil his reelection chances. And no amount of eating Minnesota cheddar at a St. Paul Packers game can make that up for him. This would be especially sad for Donald Trump to lose both those states because no Republican has lost them since Andrew Jackson when he was named Time Man of the Year and when he demanded that America's NATO allies chip in for 90% of the bill to defend against Russia, which didn't affect the election. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname, GIST producer, goes up to Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, and says, are you familiar with BOFA? And Daniel says, what's BOFA? And Pierre says, BOFA D-Stable! Still workshopping that one. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He worked in a Jewish deli where his job was to scrape off one type of smoked fish if customers ordered the locks. He was the disabler. 
The gist, we value you as listeners. I hope you know it when I look into your eyes and say with all the sincerity that I could muster that very lie. No! No, Mr. Chairman, how dare you? How are you you the gist? I said good day, sir. Humanity! Peru, Peru, Peru. And thanks for listening.